copy of the Bible, uh, turn to the book of First Thessalonians, uh, Paul's letter to uh, the believers there in the, the Greek city of Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter 1, today we're going to be in verses 2 through 10. The other day as I was driving down the road, I saw a, a farmer there selling produce, and on the box uh, boxes of the different things he had, there was this logo. The logo said, Kentucky Proud. And uh, you all have probably seen that before. And um, if you're not familiar with Kentucky Proud, it means it's produce that's grown here locally, here in the area. Uh, it's, it's produce and, and food that Kentucky can be proud of because it's of a higher quality. I got to thinking about if we were going to have a logo slapped to the side of our church would that logo read Jesus proud would we have a church that was of a higher quality of which our Lord and Savior would be proud of we are going through this series Paul's letter uh, to the Thessalonians and here today we see in chapter 1 he expresses his thankfulness for that church and indeed this was a church there in Thessalonica this was a church that could be labeled Jesus proud so we ask ourselves the question how can we be that type of church how can we be a church that Jesus is proud of and typically when we think of that the images that come to mind may not necessarily be what makes our Lord so proud. We think, well, if we're going to be a, a, a church Jesus is proud of, it's got to be, got to be a lot of people there. Uh, it's, got to, it's got to be a, a big, beautiful building, right? And there needs to be a, a lot of money given in the offering. And, and that's a church Jesus is proud of. But is that necessarily the truth? Well, today we're going to see in the book of Thessalonians, I believe, uh, some lessons regarding that. Let's strive to make Ephesus a church for which Jesus will be proud. Strive to make Ephesus a church for which our Lord and Savior will be proud of, a church that brings Him glory. I want to encourage you, if you're able to this morning, please stand with me. This is in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. As I read this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2, and Paul writes these words in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us 
from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, God, for your revelation. God, that you speak to us in an inerrant way, in a powerful way, authoritative way. In the pages of the scripture, God, we find your word, your, your communication to us. And as we read Paul's letter to this church there, we are reading your word and your instruction also to us. As Paul was proud of that church and as Paul was thankful for that church, it is my prayer that we will have a church that we all can be thankful for and a church, Lord, that you are proud of. God bless the preaching of your word. May our hearts be stirred. May our lives be moved in the direction you would have us to go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. We've begun this new series called Encouraging Excellence based upon Paul's letter to the church there uh, in Thessalonica. And Paul is writing, first of all, in the first part of this letter, and he is encouraging this church. He is, he is thankful for this church. This is a, a strong church. He had a, he had a good experience with them there. And, and uh, he writes this letter to them knowing that they are continuing on in their faith. And Paul is grateful for that. And we say that this is the church that Jesus was proud of, and we ask ourselves, how can we be, be this kind of church? How can we make our Lord proud of Ephesus? Well, first of all, we, we should be an enduring church. Enduring church, like the church there in Thessalonica. In verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God for all of you. And that's where it all lies. Everything about this church that Paul's thankful for, everything that makes the Lord proud... He says, we thank God. He doesn't say, we thank you guys, you guys for being so awesome. Thank you, church, for doing all that you do. He begins by saying, we thank God for all that's going on in your church because it's all by God's grace. Without the Lord, there would be nothing of substance and significance eternally taking place we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers Paul says we pray for you often constantly bearing in mind these things what are these things that Paul is, is thankful for in this church how can we be an enduring church like this well we need to maintain a living faith a living faith verse 3 says constantly bearing in mind your work of faith your work of faith in other words they had a faith that they lived out what they what they believed affected the way they behaved they practiced what they preached the the truth and the message about jesus impacted them in such a way that they began to work that out in their lives and other people including paul could see they were truly born again believers because their faith was working. Their faith was living. And by the way, James in chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. But he says, your, your faith is evident by your works. It was a living faith. And we likewise need to maintain a living faith. But also, maintain a laboring love. Verse 3 goes on to say, 
not only your work of faith, but your labor of love. That word labor there means burdensome. Uh, it means a state of discomfort. In other words, they were loving until it hurt. It's one thing to say you love. It's another thing to, to truly demonstrate that by your actions, by unselfish acts of kindness and compassion towards others. He says, we are mindful and we thank God because we bear in mind your labor of love. You are loving until it hurts. And if we're going to be an enduring church, we need to love people in a laboring kind of way that, that we are willing to be burdened for them, for their sake. A laboring love, but also a lasting hope. Verse 3, he says, Your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Steadfast. That means it's lasting. It won't quit. It's a hope, he says, that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just wishful thinking and saying, well, I hope things are better. But no, it is a hope that is grounded in the reality, Paul says, of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is who he is, and because he's done what he has done, therefore we have hope that a better day is coming. We have hope that no matter what we go through now, things will improve. We have glory to look forward to. We have a lasting hope. A hope that will not stop. Speaking of which, I read this week about one of our newest uh, basketball players at UK. Which, by the way, they're playing basketball today. Isn't that, a, isn't that an awesome thing? Here it is August, and they're getting ready to play some basketball. You'd have never guessed by looking at my wardrobe today, I know. Uh, <laughs> Y'all might think, well, it's at 1 o'clock, so he's going to have to hurry up and get through this. And, and no, I'm going to preach what the Lord lays on my heart and just praise Him for DVR. <laughs> and we can record it. I, I know Laura and Tommy's got their DVR set. You know, they're, they're ready to watch Wildcats. Uh, but anyway, read about one of our newest players, a freshman named Devin Booker. And every year as the players come in, the strength and conditioning coach puts them on an exercise, on a treadmill, uh, to test their endurance because they want to make sure the players you know, can, can, uh, can play and make sure they build their endurance. They have to know where they're at to, to see if the, how they can improve. And so each player gets on the treadmill and they're told to run full speed and, and they increase the, uh, the, uh, the tension on it and so forth. And, and uh, strength coach Rock Oliver says when he, when he put uh, Devin Booker on there, he told him, now run full speed. And he says three minutes go by, five minutes go by, seven minutes go by, ten minutes go, goes by, and he's still running full speed. And he said, I tell the guys once they reach a certain point that, okay, you can stop when you want to. And he says, inevitably they'll get to a point where they feel like they can't go no more and they'll stop. He says, that's how we test their endurance. He says, but not with Devin Booker. He just kept running and kept running and kept running. And he says, this was the only guy he had ever had to told, okay, now quit running. Enough. And when he was asked about this, this is what Devin Booker said, I've never been the type to quit. When someone puts you in that situation, they tell you, like, you can get off when you want to. I'm going to go until I fall off. <laughs> There's an enduring basketball player. Are we going to be an enduring church? When this world says, this whole Jesus kick you're on, you can just drop it whenever you want to. Anytime you want to stop, go right ahead. Are we going to run 
until we fall off. That's an enduring church. That was the Thessalonian church. Are we that kind of church? Jesus is proud of an enduring church. But also we need to be an exemplary church. An exemplary church. We are the type of church that others should imitate. We need to to set a, a pattern in our church that is worth following. And other churches consider us. Well, how do we do that? Well, we need to first of all embrace God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. Verse 4, Paul says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. If we are to embrace God's sovereignty, we need to have a belief in the doctrine of election. He writes in verse 4, Brethren, which is a, a, a term of, of uh, a familial commitment to one another. We are part of God's family, beloved by God. We have been God's uh, chosen objects for Him to bestow His love upon. And He says His choice of you. God chose that church. God chose you. Even when we were yet sinners, it says Christ died for us. The, the love that God has for us is a electing kind of love where God says, I'm not going to choose anyone based upon their deservingness. I'm going to choose because I love. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that we as Christians were chosen by God before creation, which is amazing to think about it. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. We were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, but yet now in the present time, as we accept the Lord, our, our election is made known to us. And this is a great mystery. And Christians for many, many years have been trying to wrestle with this doctrine of God choosing us and, and us responding to Him. And, and how does that work? Well, we know it is biblical because God tells us right here in verse 4, His choice of you. His, in the King James it says His what? His election of you. Paul talks about that. Now he said in Ephesians chapter 1, then Romans chapter 8, and in Romans chapter 9 we read about these things. So this is a biblical doctrine. In the Old Testament it says that God, out of all the people and all the nations of the world, God chose Abraham to make a mighty nation. Out of. And God chose Israel to be the instrument by which he would display his grace through election. I choose Israel. And through which God would display his glory so that they might be his instruments to reach the nations. That's in the Old Testament. God shows Abraham. God shows Israel. In the New Testament, God chooses us as the church to be the instrument by which he displays his grace and his glory. Now there are some that, that hear the doctrine of election or predestination and it, it troubles them and it bothers them because they, they try to, to, to take that doctrine to its fullest and furthest extent and they say, well, if that's true, it makes you lazy because after all, if you're chosen and elect by God, it doesn't matter what you do, you're saved. But according to verse 3, was the Thessalonian church a lazy church? <laughs> no, he said they were an enduring church. Their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, they weren't lazy. Paul says, but we know you were chosen. 
And some try to argue, well, if, if, there, if this is true, if God chooses some uh, to be elect and to save, then that means that we don't, have to, uh, we don't have to share the gospel. We don't have to worry about missions and evangelism. You think Paul didn't care about missions? <laughs> you think Paul didn't share the gospel? We read later on about this church here in Thessalonica, verse 8, it says, The word of the Lord had sounded forth from you. Even though they were chosen by God, they were still preaching the gospel. And there were some that would say, well, if we really believe in election and God chooses certain people to be saved, then, then it removes uh, the, our ability or our need to respond. Because if, if people are elect, they don't need to respond. But Paul says, what about this church in verse 9? about the reception they had of the gospel, how you turned to God. He says, I believe you were elect, verse 4. And how do we know that? Verse 9, you turned to God. And so there was a responsibility on those people. There is a responsibility on your part and my part. This whole mystery of election, how does that work out? I don't know. Who's elect and who's not? I don't know. But Paul says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so we embrace this doctrine. I find it a comforting doctrine. No, my salvation is not based upon whether or not I have chosen God. My salvation is dependent upon the fact that God has chosen me. Why he chose me, I don't know. I have no clue. I wouldn't have chosen me. <laughs> but if God did, I praise him for that, and I find comfort in that. Embrace God's sovereignty. Verse 5, it says we emphasize God's spirit. Paul says in verse 4, knowing his choice of you. Verse 5, 4, because the evidence, how do you know? Elect or not, Paul? You believe God chose this church? Why? How do you, what, what makes you think, Paul, God chose these people for salvation? Paul says, well, verse 5, 4, because... Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Paul says our gospel. Is it something that Paul just made up? Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says the gospel of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying our gospel, our message, is the same message that comes from God. It's the same message that comes from Christ. It's about Christ. And Paul says, our good news, our message of the gospel from God about Christ, it didn't come to you in word only. It wasn't just a bunch of talk. Paul says, no, no, no. But it was also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction or full assurance. There was something that happened that led Paul to believe God's election was on these people and that something was that when the gospel came it wasn't just words there was a response there was something divine there was something supernatural the Holy Spirit showed up and he says that there was power and transformation he says there was full conviction full assurance was it conviction of those who heard the message yes they were convicted of their sins and they wouldn't have been convicted of their sins if the Holy Spirit didn't show up. 
And it was also the conviction of the preachers. They were preaching with the assurance that what they were saying was from God, and they expected God to do something. And as they preached, their gospel came more than just words, but something supernatural happened. And a change took place. And Paul says the gospel came in power. And sometimes we read that and we think about what happened in the book of Acts and we think about the miraculous signs and the wonders that accompanied the preaching of the gospel. Maybe Paul had that in mind. But I believe Paul had something else also in mind, not just that. But I believe Paul was pointing to the evidence of changed lives. You all were transformed. Paul says at the end of verse 4, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul says, the gospel of Jesus changed me. My life is different. And you all, through our preaching of the gospel, you saw that, and now your lives are also different. That's how you know the Holy Spirit showed up, folks. That's how you know it's really of God. It's not always about the spectacular and, 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 the, and, the, and the powerful displays. It's about a changed life. A heart that is different than it was before it heard the gospel. That's how you know it's real. That's how you know it's powerful. Paul says, that's how I know you all were elect because it changed you. Just like it changed me. Paul says, we need to emphasize God's spirit because it's more than just words. Because no amount of human eloquence no amount of human wisdom and ingenuity, no amount of packaging of the message is going to change anybody's heart. I can't do that. You can't do that. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. It's through the preaching of Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to, to move in a person's heart and they begin to realize, wow, this is true. I am a sinner. I deserve God's judgment. I believe Jesus died for me. I need to surrender my life to Him. It is through the Holy Spirit moving. That's how you know the gospel is having an effect. And when a person surrenders and accepts that and is transformed, that's how you know. Okay? God is up to something here. We emphasize God's spirits to be an exemplary church. We believe that if the Spirit ain't involved, Nothing is going to happen of significance. We emphasize God's Spirit. We emulate God's Son in verses 6 and 7. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul says, You, you began to, to model us. You began to emulate us just as we emulate Christ. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. How so? Because you have received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We read last week in the book of Acts when this church was founded, there was persecution involved. Paul and his disciples had to leave town. Those people, they remained. And Paul was worried that maybe through their suffering that they would lose hope and they would quit the race. Paul says, but you became imitators of us. You received the word. Even though there was much tribulation, you received it with joy. How can you have joy in the midst of tribulation? Paul says, in the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's there, there's also joy there. Why? Because joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, love 
joy, peace. If there's no joy, maybe there's no Holy Spirit. But Paul says, even though there's tribulation, you still receive the word with joy. He says, you were excited about what God was doing. You became imitators of us. Receive the word much tribulation, joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. He says, you followed us in the Lord, and by following the right pattern, you began to set the right pattern. That's how we become an exemplary church. We imitate Christ. We emulate the Lord, and as we do that, we begin to set the pattern so that if another church followed what we were doing, if we were following the Lord, they're following the right example. That's why we need to imitate, imitate Christ, emulate God's Son in the midst of tribulation. They didn't quit. We think about an exemplary church and we think about tribulation. I can't help but think about what's going on in Iraq right now where militant Islamic groups are beginning to slaughter Christians and, and drive them up onto the top of a mountain so they would starve to death. And all along they're telling them, all you got to do is just give up Christianity, just, just give up faith in Jesus, convert to Islam, and you'll live. It's that simple. You won't have to worry about children being slaughtered. You won't have to worry about women being raped. You won't have to worry about being hung and beheaded and shot and all these things they're doing. You want to worry about starving to death? Just give up Jesus. That's all we ask. Give up Jesus and live. And these people say, no, not a chance. I would rather endure all that I have to endure and not give up Christ because I have been transformed by His Holy Spirit. This is truth. I can't turn my back on truth. What I know to be true. And as they are enduring for Christ, they are an exemplary church. That's the kind of faith we need. That's the kind of faith that's on the treadmill and says, I ain't going to get off till I fall off. It's exemplary church. That's the Thessalonian church. Paul says, in much tribulation you receive the word with joy. And therefore, you followed Christ, and now you're setting an example. It's the kind of church Jesus is proud of. It's a Jesus-proud church. Be an enduring church, an exemplary church, and finally, an evangelistic church. How do we demonstrate our election? What is one way in which we prove to be in a church that is truly elect by God? How do we, how do we set an example for others to follow? We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. We share the good news. Verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord. That means we proclaim His message. It's the word of the Lord. It wasn't the word of Paul. It's not my word. It's not your word. It's not the word of, of Ephesus Baptist Church. The word of the Lord. This is God's message. Folks, this is God's book. And because it's God's, we have no right to change it. We have no right to go tinkering with it, taking out parts we don't like, taking out parts that, that people might be offended of, or adding things, making it say things it never really said. This is the word of the Lord. We proclaim His message. We don't proclaim His message. It ain't the good news. 
proclaim his message. The word of the Lord, he says, has sounded forth. That means literally a trumpet blast. That means these folks, they got the gospel, and they didn't sit on the gospel. They got the gospel and said, oh, this is good stuff. People need to hear this. And then they sounded it forth, blasted like a trumpet, and said, Jesus saves. Jesus transforms. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus is Lord. They begin to sound this word forth. This is not only in Macedonia, where you're at, and Achaia, the surrounding region, but also every place your faith towards God's gone forth. We don't need to say anything. Paul says, everywhere you guys go, we're hearing this stuff, that you are out there sharing the good news. So not only do we need to proclaim his message, we personify his ministry. Just like Jesus. He didn't stay in one place very long. No, he went where the people were. He went to where people needed the gospel and he gave them the gospel. He met people where they were in their lives, even though their lives were messed up. Jesus went to them and said, you know what? I love you anyway. And here's what you need to do. You need to turn from your sin. Give your life to God. You need to follow me. I love you. Your life's messed up, but I'm ready to take you from that, forgive you from all you've done in the past, make you a new person. But you're going to do that. You're going to come to me on my terms. Because this stuff you're doing, I don't like it. <laughs> but I'm here to help you. I'm forgive you, and I'm going to help clean you up and get you out of that. Take you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock. Like we just read a while ago. You know, Jesus never stayed in one place for very long, neither should we. We've been given the great commission to go into all the world, all the nations, make disciples. That's what Jesus wants us to do. If we're going to be a Jesus-proud church, we've got to personify his ministry, and we've got to go tell people this message. And when we do, finally, we need to prepare for his miracle. His miracle, he says in verse 9 and 10, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. So Paul says, they're, they're, people are talking about how you received us. They're also talking about how you responded to what we said. That's how we know this whole idea about election means you don't need to respond to Christ. It's baloney. That's not what election means. Election means you will respond to Christ. You must respond to Christ. You will. Verse 9, he says, the reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Paul said, you were following all this junk you thought would make you happy, and it's not because it's not true. It's not alive. It's dead. He says, but you, you turned from that. You repented from that. And you turned to serve a living and a true God. So Paul says about the Thessalonians in verse 9 and 10, they turned to God to do two things, to serve a living and true God in verse 10 and to wait for his son from heaven so they turned hearing the gospel and the Holy Spirit empowered them and moved them they turned from their sin they turned to serve God and they turned to wait on his son there is an active patience there is an, an active waiting involved 
They were waiting on the return of Jesus, but in the meanwhile, they didn't give them the excuse to be lazy. No, they were serving. They turned to serve God and to wait for Jesus. They didn't know when Jesus was coming back. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. In the meanwhile, let's serve. Let's serve because he's coming back. That's what they did in verse 10, they, to, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. He's talking about the resurrected Christ. That's how we know this whole thing is real because God raised him from the dead. God vindicated him. God accepted his sacrifice and said, it's paid in full. I'll prove it. I will raise you. And he raised Christ. The resurrected Christ He says, that is Jesus, whose name means God saves. Who he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who does what? Who rescues us from the wrath to come. You know what? You wouldn't need rescued if there wasn't no wrath coming. People say, well, God is love. God accepts all people. But the Bible says wrath is coming. Judgment day is coming. The day of the Lord, the Bible says, it's coming. And so Jesus has been appointed, according to Acts chapter 17, as God's judge. He is to judge the living and the dead. God has appointed Jesus as judge, but also we read here, he's the rescuer from the judgment. That means it's either you turn to Jesus and be rescued, or be judged by Jesus for your rejection of him. Paul says that's that's the miracle here, not only the miracle of the resurrection... It's the miracle of the, of the rescue. That God would take someone who doesn't deserve to be saved. That's, that's all of us. That's myself and that's you. The miracle is he would take those who don't deserve to be rescued and rescue us. Why would he do that? He says, because I love you. And I choose you. And because I chose you, I will redeem you and rescue you. You don't have to worry about the wrath to come. Jesus is coming back. I'm sending my son again. He's coming to rescue you. He's coming to judge the rest. The greatest miracle of all is salvation. That one would turn from serving idols to serve a living and a true God. That one would be born again. So I ask you in this, what is your role in our success. If we want to be a Jesus-proud church, if we want to be a church that, that, that God is proud of, that we can be proud of in Christ, what is your role in our success? Because look with me at verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for who? He didn't say, We give thanks to God for those of you who are smart. We give thanks to God for those of you who are really good musicians. We give thanks to God to those of you who who, uh, are willing to stand up and teach or preach. We give thanks to God to those of you who give a lot of money. Because sometimes we kind of think, well, if I can't do any of those things, I can't do anything. I can't preach, teach, play music. I I don't have a lot of money to give. I'm not much use to God. But Paul says, we thank God always for all of you for y'all 
Paul says, we give thanks to God because every single one of you are crucial to this. And Paul says, we give thanks to God for all of you knowing your beloved by God, his choice of you, plural. Our gospel didn't come to you, plural, in word only. Becoming imitators of us, you received, you all received the word so that you all became an example. The Lord has sounded forth from you, plural. Paul says every single one of the members of that church was on board and a part of this. And God was showing up and doing things mighty and marvelous and miraculous in that church because every single believer, every single member was crucial. What's your role in this? We can't be a Jesus-proud church if you're not fulfilling the role that he has for you to fulfill. Talked about our study tonight, 6 o'clock, I am a church member. Talks about this very thing. That our church cannot be successful as God wants it to be unless you as an individual are on board with the Lord in doing what God has called you to do. Every single one of you play a vital role in the success of this church. I thank God for my church because I believe we are an enduring church. I believe we are an exemplary church. I believe we are an evangelistic church and the reason why is because of you, because of God working in you and you surrendering to Him. And that's the very first step. Coming to God through faith in Christ. Turning from idols to serve a living and true God. Giving your life to Jesus Christ. Starts that process that continues to go throughout your life. I thank God for my church. I thank God for you. And it is my prayer that every single one of us will strive to make Ephesus Baptist Church a congregation for which our Lord Jesus can be proud because He deserves it. Let's pray together.